psalmist is Dr. Bruce Walke in his teaching on the book of Psalms. This is Session 27, Wisdom Psalms Genre, Psalm 19. And in the last lecture, we introduced the genre. And basically, it pertains to psalms that give us admonition, both positive and also theodical psalms that warn us not to envy the prosperity of the, of the wicked. And then we moved into uh, looking at the psalm. Um, we had done earlier lectures, Psalm 1, uh, put together wisdom in Torah because Torah psalms are also admonition and instruction. And so we looked at the very first lecture about Psalm 1, which was a Torah psalm. And we looked at the theodical psalms like Psalm 49 and Psalm 73. And so I thought we would do another one like Psalm 19, which is a Torah psalm and an instruction psalm. And we saw the basic structure of it, that it, it praises God in the creation, uh, general revelation, and it praises God for Torah and, and special revelation. And I think there's a relationship between that. It's not just simply praise for two kinds of revelation. But I think the point of it is that, as well, that because of his knowledge and general revelation, Therefore, he's able to give certain moral revelation in Holy Scripture. So I don't think it's just simply two aspects of praise. I think they're quite unified in wisdom thinking. And I tried to demonstrate that from Job 28 and Proverbs chapter 30, which puts that together. And this would be the similar thing that God knows the whole heavens and therefore the fear of the Lord what we saw in Job, because he knows everything. Therefore, what he says is to keep the fear of the Lord. And here, because he's created everything, here again we get the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. So it seems to be that sort of logic of the wisdom uh, thinker. Now we want to look at it in more detail and exegete, exposit the psalm. And this is on page 331. And we begin with the first stanza, uh, God's knowledge or his omniscience that's displayed in the creation. Um, actually, that should be verses 1 through 6, not just simply verses 1 through 4. But it's God's knowledge. And what I'm doing here is I'm looking at the psalm exegetically. And then, since we had the eschatological messianic approach, I'm thereupon trying to look at it as well in light of the New Testament. And then um, I'm looking at it and what does it mean to us personally today? So I divided the, this up into the historical interpreter exegesis, then how does this relate to Christ? And then how do we understand that in, in, in application to ourselves? First of all, then, we have in verses 1 through 4 that the firmament declares, 4b really, the firmament declares God's glory, and God's glory is his comprehensive knowledge. 
there are two um, units here. Actually, the 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 the, the God's knowledge and um, the stanza uh, has really two strophes to it. The first one is God's firmament declares his the firmament declares God's glory or his knowledge, and then he focuses in in particular on the sun in the last half of verse four through verse six. Speaking of God, uh, let me um, let me get the psalm in front of me here. Um, that in that first um, strophe about uh, the firmament declares God's knowledge and that's what gives him glory, is that he speaks in verses 1 and 2 about the temporal universality of the firmament's praise of God's knowledge. Uh, you can see in verse 2, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So both day and night, ever, always, he is revealing his glory and his knowledge. In verse 4, he speaks about his uh, universality in space, his spatial universality of spatial of, uh, of, of the firmament's praise. He says, their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the ends of the world and to the end of words to the end of the world. So verses one and three are verbs of declaration. So he has the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. And then verse three, he elaborates, there is no speech. There are no words. No sound is heard. And so he talks about the communication in the odd verses. And then in the even verses, he's talking about the universality of that revelation in time and in space. In the second strophe, he, phrases, he, he focuses upon the sun, which um, again is comprehensive in space. And the, the, the sun, of course, is uh, daily and in space. It's in a, verse six. It's rising. It's from the ends of the earth and its circuit to the end of them, and so it sees the whole thing. There's no end to it. And he uses two metaphors or similes in this case. One is that he pictures the sun as a bridegroom and. The simile suggests to me that it speaks of the sun's freshness, newness, uh, beauty, vigor, and joy. And the second one is a strong man. And as I would look at, who's a racer, runs its course with joy. And so he's both a sprinter, because no one can run as fast as the sun, and he's a long-distance runner. No one can run as far as the sun. So these two similes speak of his um, exuberance and speak of his uh, strength and universality. So far as refers to Christ, as I would think of it, that 
in John 1, it, Christ is the word that brought about the creation, that he is the agent of the creation through whom it is accomplished. And the moral, I, I think, I, I would bring in here what we did is Psalm 8, is that this revelation is so glorious, you're without excuse for not responding to the creator. But suffice it to say, I like Joseph Addison's paraphrase of Psalm 19. What though in solemn silence all move round the dark terrestrial ball? What though no real voice nor sound amid their radiant orbs be found? In reason's ear they all rejoice and utter forth a glorious voice. And I think that humankind, like Kant, it spoke to him immediately of God. Though there is no voice, there is no sound, yet to reason's ear, we hear it and we see it. Oh, I should have added, what though in solemn silence all move round the dark terrestrial ball, what though no real voice nor sound amid their radiant orbs be found, in reason's ear they all rejoice and utter forth a glorious voice, forever singing as they shine, the hand that made us is divine. Having spoken of the glories of God in the creation and his, and his knowledge, now we come to the moral excellence of Torah. And he basically almost exhausts the vocabulary of Torah. And I divided this into two parts, Torah's essence and Torah's reward. And his essence is his, its moral perfections. It's complete, it's flawless, it's righteous, it's eternal. And then we talked about its rewards and essentially its wisdom's reward which is life itself. But notice how he describes it in its perfection, in its seven perfections. He says, first of all, the law of the Lord is perfect, by which he means it is complete. And I like Spurgeon's comments. He said, it is a crime to add to it, treason to alter it, and felony to take from it. It's an interesting quote about it. That's a good lesson for expository preaching. Pardon? A good lesson for expository preaching. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I like the one, uh, yeah, perfect, perfect. When he says it's sure, it means it's totally reliable. And I suggest it's totally sure, totally reliable. The testimony of the Lord is sure because it's based on comprehensive knowledge. It's based on universal knowledge. Then he says that it is upright. The command of the Lord is upright. We already commented on that, which means it is faultless. It has, doesn't have a bend or twist in it. It's, it's perfectly smooth, straight. It's flawless. When he says it's pure, the Hebrew word means it's scoured until it shines. It's that, it's, it's, it's that pure. So it sh that's why it, it enlightens, it's pure. 
It's, then he says, and he said, the love of the Lord is perfect, it's absolutely perfect, it's complete, it's, it's sure, totally reliable, there's not a blemish in it, in fact, it is um, scoured until it shines, and then he says, it is clean. By that he means, there is no mixture in it, and because there is no impurities in it, it endures forever. There's nothing to make it decay. 9b, he says, the rules of the Lord are true, by which he means they are firm, they're steady. They cannot be overturned, unlike human judgments, so that his, his law is unchangeable. It's true. Cannot be altered. And it's righteous. It's in total conformity to God's character and his will. Those are the seven moral excellences of God's word. Why are, why are so many people afraid to preach it then? Because <laughs> I think the reason is <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think you know Bill, I'm, you know I think we want to please people and we'll preach what we think people want to hear. I think we want to grow churches and so we want to attract people. And we tell them what they want to hear. I think that may be the reason. Grow churches, not grow people. Good enough. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. That's a good way of putting it. Torah's reward is, he says, that it revives the soul. That is, renews vitality. Like in Psalm 22. I suggest it restores life to the sad and to the discouraged. It's used, for example, of what Obed will do for, for Naomi. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. So the word of God will renew you, will refresh you. I think that's why it's good for us to read it every morning. It is the testimony of, of, of the Lord making wise the simple. Uh, that is to say, wisdom is... The skill uh, gives life-giving and social skills. So it gives us the skill of living eternal life. And it's done. And here, uh, the Hebrew word uh, is the same as in Proverbs. But simple, the pati in Proverbs is negative. He's part of the fool. The basic meaning of the word is to be open. And so the fool is open to everything and committed to nothing. In the Psalms, it's, it's very different. The simple is open. He's open to God's instruction. He's open to learn. He's open to grow. So it's unfortunate we have to translate it simple. It's a word of the sage, but they're used in very different ways in these two books. It rejoices the heart. And of course, this assumes uh, a, a right heart. And I say that all art has two parts to it. And I, th- I think that uh, all art has two parts. There is the actual objective picture with shape and color. And you also bring a certain imagination to it. And so everyone sees it differently. So you come to art, it's both an objective and ex- subjective experience. 
And so there's the reality, the objective reality. But the way you see it depends upon your heart. If your heart is right, then you will rejoice in it. If your heart is not right, it will not rejoice in it. You will hate it. Um, I think, for example, of the uh, painting of the uh, Mona Lisa. And uh, it's supposed to be one of the greatest paintings ever ever, ever uh, produced. And um, I think by da Vinci. And um, if you go over the lure, the, the place is packed with people looking at it. And with, what fascinates people about the Mona Lisa is the smile. It's rather quixotic. Um, it's it, 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 it's, it's uh, an, sort of an enigma. How do you understand it? And people see it differently. Now, I, I hope I don't ruin the painting for you, but I was reading how people respond to it, and everybody trying to explain the smile on the Mona Lisa's face. And this woman said, I know what that smile is. It's the smile of my little daughter who pees in the bathtub. <laughs> One way to trash the... So she saw the smile, same smile on the face of a daughter in that situation. She brought a totally different imagination to that picture than I think, well, anyway, that most of us would bring to it. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Then she, it says that it enlightens the... Uh, enlightens the eye, and that's because it's clean and radiant, and the commands light up the eyes. Light up the eyes. Then he says that it is, verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even than much fine gold. And as I commented when we were doing um, Proverbs, that uh, gold can put food on the table, but it can't get fellowship around the table. That gold can give you a house, but it can't give you a home. That gold can give a woman jewelry and fur on her back, but it can't give her the love she really wants. And so wisdom will put, give you a house, I'll give you a home as well as a house. It will give you a table full of food as well as fellowship around the table and it will give a woman luxuries as well as the love she really wants so it does both then he says it is sweeter than than drippings from the honeycomb that's to a healthy taste whereas we saw that the rebels in Psalm 2 saw it as a galling bondage so he's responding as a saint, the way a saint looks at Torah and its benefactions. He goes on to say that by them your servant is warned to avoid sin, and keeping of them there is great reward, including all that we've just read. That leads him then, by them is your servant warned, that leads him then to his two prayers. And his first prayer is for hidden sins. Two petitions. One petition is for hidden sins. That's in verse 12. And the other one is to be kept from insolent men. And 
I think that's verse uh, verse 13. So, first one then is for hidden sins. And um, since they're hidden, you can't confess them. And uh, yet we know we sin. So, Lane and I begin every morning uh, with our Lord's liturgy that we ask God to forgive us all of our sins. If we know a specific sin, then we have the responsibility to name it and to renounce it. But we're so depraved that we sin against God, I think, almost in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. And we're in constant need of forgiveness. And David is saying, and and this prayer is answered, that God forgives our hidden sins because it becomes part of canon. And therefore, it's God's response to David, I assume, since it was put in the canon of Scripture for the director of music, that we can all pray it and be assured God forgives us our hidden sins as well as our confessed known sins. I say since they're hidden, they cannot, we cannot renounce and uh, confess them to God. His second request is that God hold him back from the rule of insolent men. And we've already talked about that. I suggest here, none is free from the danger of apostasy. And I think we express it when we sing the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And I think we all know that it takes the grace of God to persevere in the faith. When he says, um, the, he gives the reason for that. Um, where am I in the trend? Give me a break here to get the translation in front of me. Um, what page was that on? 327. Yeah. 328. Yeah. Okay, his second petition after he asked God to uh, uh, forgive his hidden sins, then he says in verse 13, keep back your servant also from the insolent. And I suggested that none is free from the danger of apostasy. And I think that it's appropriate to add here that without help from God, None of us is a match for Satan. That behind the apostate is Satan and demonic forces. And we're no match for it. And we constantly need God's help. And his reason is, then I shall be blameless to keep in integrity and innocent of the great transgression. And the question is, what is the great transgression? And I think the word pasha means rebellion, rebellion against God's rule, and that means breaking faith with him. 
Whoever commits pesha does not merely rebel or protest against Yahweh, but breaks with him. And so what he's asking is, don't allow me to break my relationship with you. Keep me from apostasy. His conclusion is, may the, these words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And I suggest this is the protocol of the royal court that is asking for the favor of acceptance before the king, that God will accept his prayer. And these words of his mouth are these words in the praise of the heavens, for the Christian would be the praise of Christ the Creator, and it would be the praise of Torah, which today is expressed in the New Covenant. And then he refers to God as my Savior. In other words, this is not legalism. He is not striving on his own to keep the law. He's totally dependent upon God. And he's asking God to keep him from insolent men. And he's asking God to be his rock and his redeemer. The, the rock is a rock of salvation, a rock of salvation, of, of, of protection. And he's really dependent upon God who will protect him and keep him. He's not simply, uh, here's God's word and I'm going to do it. He recognizes he can't. So he's a petitioner. And I suggest at the end, his words found favor, the words of his mouth found favor because they were accepted into the canon of scripture and God was pleased with his prayer. I, I keep hearing the last line of the Lord's Prayer, which is such a problematic, you know, yeah. lead us not in temptation. Well, God doesn't tempt us, right. but he does test us, Right. but deliver us from evil or the evil one. Yeah. And I... I I'm finding myself wondering, is, 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 is Jesus teaching us to pray the, the same thing that David is praying here? Yeah. That keep us from apostatizing? Keep us from, the, yeah, I think, from, from dealing with Satan who we can't deal with on our own? Yeah I, yeah, I think that I've troubled with it too. But I think this psalm has helped me to understand yeah. it. That... We're saying we can't handle it. Keep us from even the temptation because we recognize our weakness. Lead us not. Do, we can't handle it. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a very humble prayer. And we say, um, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Okay. Tra great transgression is breaking with God. That's right. That's what I think. Which in modern theology would be apost which is called yeah. apostatizing. Right. So, so keep me from permanently breaking with you. Yeah. Because I can't continue on under my own power that I need God. Well, and uh, we, well, I think that it's a prayer. Yeah. Prayer. Yeah. That I can't do it. You have to keep me. He's dependent mm -hmm. upon God to keep him yeah. from doing it because he recognizes I can't do this on my own. Because we're all prone to wander. Yeah. Oh. Yeah.
So I think this gives us insight. I, I used to be troubled by that, till God doesn't lead us into temptation and so forth. But I am praying, I'm not able to handle it. Yeah. And so God, I know myself and what, how sinful I am and put me in the wrong context and I may be guilty of the wrong transgression, of great, great transgression. When I graduated from high school, I was offered a scholarship in a, a liberal uh, college and I turned it down because I didn't think I could handle it. I was too young, and I was afraid. I didn't know the psalm, but intuitively, I was afraid I'd be guilty of the great transgression, because I couldn't answer the professors. This is Dr. Bruce Walke in his teaching on the book of Psalms. This is session 27, Wisdom Psalms Genre, Psalm 19.